Welcome to the 26th of August, 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. As always, I am so glad that you could join us for today's show. It's a beautiful Friday outside, um, and it's the last Friday of the month of August. My goodness, this has been a very, very fast summer. Don't you agree? Well, founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring and revealing the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Indeed, it is one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. And for so many of us, it's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back 400 years or nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you are here to stay or just passing through, well, by golly, we welcome you with open arms. Like it or not, you're a part of our history. So congratulations. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, a landscape architect and principal of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Zone Institute, which is a special project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor, a good friend of mine of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. Today we'll travel back in history to a period the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the quote-unquote flowering of Greenwich when the word Greenwich was synonymous with the word millionaire. Of course, we're going back to the Gilded Age, the Great Estate, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book was published by the Junior League of Greenwich. Today's show will feature Chelmsford, designed by the renowned architects McKim, Mead, and White for Elon Huntington Hooker, billed as one of the showplaces of Greenwich, Connecticut in the 1930s. On Crimes and Misdemeanors, a schooner with a substantial shipment of lumber was docked at Mar Brothers Dock in Greenwich Harbor. This was the era of prohibition. Now, were there illegal bottles of alcohol on board? Well, the authorities certainly thought so, and I'll have more. In 1924, James F. White had been renting a house on Semlo Farm, one of the great estates, and today's Stanwich Club off North Street, from Mrs. Marion F. Holmes, the widow of E.T. Holmes, since 1921. She thought it was time for Captain White to go. He wanted to stay. The matter went to court. What happened? I'll tell you. Round Hill is a special place for me. I have to be honest, I grew up there, and I loved it. (laughs) From the year 1903, we have the following. The panorama, which on clear days unfolds itself well, rewards the gentle ascent. It is hard to believe that such a perspective be possible from it, but there to the south lies the broad and shimmering waters of the Sound with sailing craft gliding to and fro and steamers belching forth ringlets of smoke, unquote. 
I will have more about Discover Greenwich, creating a sense of place, celebrating the 90th year anniversary of the Greenwich Historical Society. And I'll have news of exhibits, activities, and events for the public, for everybody, including you. (laughs) Where did the summer go? Boy, I'm wondering. It went by so fast. It's the 26th of August. It's the final Friday of the month of um, of August in year 2022. You've come to the right place to learn more about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. I'm going to have all this and more as history continues to unfold. So please stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience, coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L-I-S-I-H-I-2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. 
AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor. Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Have I got exciting news for you. Join me as we experience together the ancient cultures and vibrant modernity of Asia. Asia Today with Jeffrey Bingham Mead is back. Presented through the underwriting sponsorship of Eastern Neurologic Services of New York City, offering comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services, the revived Asia Today Show podcast will feature thought leaders and knowledgeable guests as we explore a fascinating part of the world that has intrigued and dazzled visitors for centuries, from the fabled Silk Road to stunning modern cultures thriving across the Asian continent as never before. Learn more at radioasiatoday.blogspot.com. That's Asia Today with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm your host. Looking forward to being back with you. It's the time in which here on this podcast, we get to go back in time to the greatest states era. My good friend, the late town historian, William E. Finch Jr., referred to this period from 1880 to 1930 as, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote. It was an age when the word Greenwich, as in Greenwich, Connecticut, first became synonymous with Millionaire. Now, the Junior League of Greenwich has played an impressive role since it was chartered in 1959, through, and they've been doing so with valuable projects and services to the town of Greenwich and its people, as no one has done before or since. Now, one of those priceless projects was the research and publication of The Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book. My friends, it is richly illustrated with a wealth of um, details. Now, what we're going to do is that we're going to take a glimpse into a world in which the wealthy of this era came to Greenwich and constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and beautiful landscapes, reminding us in the 21st century of a bygone era never to return. The a state that I have chosen to share with you today is known as Chelmsford. 
Now, the principal owner was Elon Huntington Hooker. We don't know who the original architect was. However, there was an architect for renovations, which occurred from the years 1908 to 1911, and they used the renowned architectural firm McKin, Mead, and White. It is singularly, singularly pleasing to recognize that a particular house reflects its owner's personalities, tastes, and way of life. Such an estate as Chelmsford, owned by Mr. and Mrs. Elon Huntington Hooker, together from 1906 to 1938 and after his death by her until 1956. It is a lovely and livable home, billed as one of the showplaces of Greenwich in the 1930s, but never pretentious or overbearing. The living space and the ten bedrooms are gracious and roomy, and countless closets, shelves, and odd nooks provide storage and conveniences almost beyond belief. For Mrs. Hooker ran an efficient household in a careful and meticulous manner. The grounds, with her beloved gardens and his tennis court, as well as one of the earliest and largest swimming pools in town, enabled them to enjoy their leisure in what was then the country. Finally, such an estate provided an ideal way of life for their four daughters, with whom they spent a great deal of time. Elon Hooker, who lived from 1869 to 1938, was born in Rochester, New York. He was a descendant in direct line from Reverend Thomas Hooker, who was instrumental in the founding of the state of Connecticut as one of the original 13 colonies. Elon Hooker earned degrees from the University of Rochester and Cornell University, where he won highest honors and was awarded a fellowship which took him to Europe. Armed with a letter of introduction while in Rome, he was able to meet Blanche Ferry of Detroit, daughter of Dexter M. Ferry, daughter and owner of large flower and seed properties. One of the Hooker children relates that they fell in love in 24 hours, but that he postponed marriage until he had finished his education and could support his wife. Though the object of many suitors' attention, she waited for him and they were married in 1901. The eventual result of his aptitude for engineering and science was the Hooker Electrochemical Company, founded in the early 1900s. From property best described as a shanty in a dead pear orchard, he developed what became the largest enterprise of its kind in the world, an immense plant covering 32 acres located in Niagara Falls, New York. He loved his work, and was an engineer at heart. However, he also taught Baptist Sunday School, and he was a Greek scholar and a very good, very competitive athlete, a champion college tennis player, and an avid fisherman. Blanche Ferry Hooker was a bright, capable woman who, with her sister, was one of the first girls from Detroit to go east to college. She excelled at Vassar, was president of her class and was involved all her life in many cultural and social activities. At the time of her death, she was also known as a leading horticulturalist. In addition, she possessed a financial turn of mind and ran Chelmsford in a very businesslike way. After living for some time on North Street in Greenwich, the Hookers decided to move in with their good friends, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Lanyard, 
who in 1898 had bought land close to town from Alexander and Cynthia Mead. The hookers bought from them their house and a little over 15 acres in 1906, adding almost four more acres in 1912. They engaged the outstanding architectural firm of McKim, Mead, and White to design additions to the rather small house they had purchased. Accordingly, a wing containing the spacious drawing room and the master bedroom suite was built in 1908, and by 1911, the service wing and more bedrooms had been added. During the course of the latter construction, the hookers took their four little girls to Europe to avoid the confusion of the work in progress. And when they returned, the addition was finished. The resulting house is a long, rambling structure built of stone and clapboard with a Ludovici tile roof in what might be called Dutch colonial style. All the rooms, with the exception of the library and a small room upstairs, have either an eastern or southern exposure so that the sun fills room after room during the course of the day. The atmosphere, even in the third-floor servants' rooms, is therefore light and airy, and as the site is high, almost any window allows a view through the woods punctuated with rocky crags, down and steep hill to Horseneck Brook, or over lawns and gardens. The living and dining rooms, both part of the original house, differ in style from the additions made by McKim, Mead, and White. The very large entrance hall, serving as a living room, is a replica of a Tudor room, with a beamed ceiling and an ornately carved Norman-style fireplace, which has a stone surround. It contained the large English furniture appropriate to the period. The paneled dining room walls were always painted white. When the hookers moved the fireplace from one side of the room to the other, a large window overlooking the property's extensive back lawns was put in its place. The wall around the new fireplace was then covered with tiles depicting biblical, mythical, and Dutch scenes, done in mauve rather than the usual blue tones. The effect is striking. The drawing room, on the other hand, is neoclassical in design. It is a large and elegant room with a marble fireplace and decorations including dental molding, egg and dart detail, and ionic columns. The hookers furnished it with Chippendale furniture. Long draperies hung from brass rods and were changed summer and winter according to the careful schedules made out by Blanche Hooker for the running of the household. When not in use, they were kept upstairs in unusually long drawers designed especially for their storage. Bedrooms on the second floor, for parents, the four daughters, governess, and guests, are all connected one to the next through bathrooms and alcoves with extra sinks and mirrors for greater convenience. All the bedrooms except two have fireplaces. Figures of animals adorn the tiled fireplace surrounding in one child's bedroom. The differing heights of sinks and mirrors, tailored to the tall Elon Hooker and his petite wife, are typical of the special touches that are noticeable. Showers are marble. Stained glass insets illustrating La Fontaine's fables adorn a child's bathroom. 
Bookcases extend down the long hallway and are innumerable closets. Tiled closets for cleaning supplies, a carpenter's closet with drawers of built-in labeled boxes and shadow pictures of tools painted on the wall, according to her daughter. If a tool wasn't put back in the right place, you were in trouble. Uh, I've heard that before. A closet with wrapping packages complete with iron holders for rolls of paper and drawers for string and other necessities. An enormous fuse box identifies the sewing machine light and the elevator light, among countless others. The service wing was a world of its own, complete with the servants' dining room, including paneled cupboards and shelves, the laundry room with cement floor and big machines that washed and ironed, a two-room tiled servants' bathroom with not only the usual facilities but also a large slop sink for wastewater, the storage room where huge iceboxes held blocks brought in through an opening, and, dumb, and, and the dumbwaiter, as massive as an elevator with two doors on two sides. Finally, the spacious kitchen and butler's pantry were fitted out with the necessities. Huge stoves, first coal, later gas, sinks, a large central preparation table, and always storage and more storage, cabinets, substantial wooden drawers with brass pulls, endless shelves, In addition, there were marvelous conveniences, such as an enormous plate warmer with a marble top, cutting boards that pulled out when needed, then disappeared, a large inset slab of marble mounted with a strong light overhead for making bread, porcelain doorknobs and white tiles everywhere, some decorated with blue designs. Rows of bells for summoning servants were arranged on a big wall panel. The original landscaping of the grounds was done by Charles Gillette of Richmond, Virginia, but Elon Hooker was responsible for designing the curving driveway, which wound around the stately trees, leaving them intact. After the initial planning, Bryant Fleming made further changes, including the unusual long grassy steps he designed in back, resulting in a more gradual slope down the hill, because he felt it gave the house more composure. The gardens were not arranged in a stiffly formal manner, but overflowing with flowers. They were tended by 15 to 20 gardeners, mostly Italian, who walked an hour and a half to work through the back fields every day from the Porchester area. The two-acre vegetable gardens supplied more than enough for the hookers, and all extra produce, flowers and milk, were regularly given away to those employed on the estate or, often, to Greenwich Hospital. The hookers enjoyed an active social life and, over the years, invited many guests. To accommodate visitors, the picturesque Rose Cottage was built. A cozy, warm house made of stone, it had four or five bedrooms, a dining room, a small living room, and its own kitchen and maid's room. It is occupied as a separate home today. There were other outbuildings. The garage, also of stone construction, contained a tiled area large enough for several big cars, space to wash them, the chauffeur's apartment, and the hooker girl's art studio above, and a gasoline pump outside. The superintendent, John Rutherford, who had married the girl's Scottish nurse, 
had a cottage for his family. The chicken coop housed as many as 200 chickens. There was a barn for cows and horses. The daughters were accomplished riders. One of their favorite horses was named Beacon Light. And before automobiles were widely used, a team of aging horses bought from the Greenwich Fire Department used to take Elon Hooker down the hill to the railroad station at a full gallop. During their first decade in the house, the Hookers stayed in Greenwich year-round. However, Elon Hooker became weary of his daily commute to New York. Consequently, he and his family adopted a routine involving four moves a year, enabling them to spend winters in their Fifth Avenue apartment, May, June, September, and October at Chelmsford, and the hottest months, July and August, at either Southampton or East Hampton. Blanche Hooker, an incredibly well-organized person, managed the logistics efficiently, making sure that the cook, the butler, the governess, and, uh, and the children, to say nothing of clothes and such essentials as silver, arrived safely at each destination. Every third summer, they took the girls to their grandparents' 600-acre farm in Unadilla, New York. Thus, Chelmsford became a place to be enjoyed during the most pleasant months of the year when much of the family activity was outdoors. The girls became excellent tennis players, horsewomen, and swimmers. The brook was stocked with fish, and Elon Hooker was fond of walking down the so-called Fisherman's Trail to fish there at 6 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Among others who were invited to enjoy the pool and the gardens were all the New York, uh, New York employees of the chemical company. Every summer, they were graciously entertained by the entire Hooker family. Residents of Greenwich may also remember Elon Hooker for his efforts to help found the Field Club. He was interested in having a club where entire families could enjoy competitive sports together. Old-timers recall the early days when mothers and nannies sat under the famous apple trees, knitting while their offspring and husbands played tennis. Today, the main house and almost nine and a half acres continued to be beautifully maintained by the present owners. And so there you go. That was Chelmsford. Now, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System or for purchase from your preferred book vendor. Now, to learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich, go online to jlgreenwich.org. Pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Ableus. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled 
with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. The Greenwich Historical Society announces its 2022 annual meeting scheduled for Wednesday, September 14th, 5.45 to 8 p.m. at the Riverside Yacht Club. Charles M. Royce will be honored with the year's David Ogilvie Preservation Award for his lifetime work preserving and restoring landmark buildings. These include Deer Mountain Inn, Ocean House, Colonel Pendleton House, Avon Theater, and United Theater. The David Ogilvie Award was established in 2021 in memory of David F. Ogilvie. He was a former president and owner of David Ogilvie & Associates. Ogilvie was a leading force in Greenwich real estate for over 40 years. His numerous charitable interests include Greenwich, Connecticut's history, architecture, and landscape. A highlight of the evening, Peter L. Malkin, a nationally renowned preservation leader, chairman of the Merritt Parkway Conservancy and honorary trustee of the Greenwich Historical Society, will interview Charles Royce in a fireside chat about his preservation projects. RSVP, please, by September 1st, 2022. Presenting sponsor is Charles Hilton Architects. Tickets available online at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899, extension 14. You are listening to the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you.
Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we call to your attention the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. That was last year, but we're still going on and celebrating, commemorating uh, the uh, founding of our police department. And this story comes from the era of prohibition, and this is uh, dated um, August 14, 1925. The headline is, Is There Booze Under This Load? So yes, it's another booze news uh, <laughs> column. Anyway, um, the appearance of a three-masted schooner known as Victory Chimes, carrying 332,000 square feet of lumber, which started out from Parsboro, Nova Scotia, consigned to Meyer Brothers, local coal and lumber dealers, is being closely guarded by United States federal inspectors off Mars Dock. That's a, a, a Greenwich Harbor. There being a suspicion there may be liquor concealed in the schooner. The schooner came into the harbor early Wednesday morning, followed by a Coast Guard cutter bearing the letter B and number 234. Since that time, inspectors from New London, Bridgeport, and New York have been on guard and will remain here until the lumber is unloaded, which will take a week or longer. The lumber was ordered by the Maher Brothers Corporation last December. A few weeks ago, a quantity of liquor was found in a similar schooner, which docked at Wesley, Rhode Island. Since that time, it is said that all coal and lumber barges have been watched more closely than before. Should there be any liquor found in the Victory Chimes, Mar Brothers Corporation will be in no way liable. Uh, so far as the lumber is concerned, many persons have visited the dock since the report spread about Greenwich. The inspectors would say, but little when interviewed, nor could much be learned from E. Lindquist, who is in charge of the Coast Guard Cutter. Well, hello, everybody. At this moment, I am sitting outside at one of my favorite coffee places here in Greenwich, Connecticut, and that would be Coffee for Good, located in the Solomon Mead House at the... Uh, well, near the intersection of East Putnam Avenue and uh, Maple Avenue. The uh, the exact address is uh, 48 Maple Avenue. I invite you to come by. This is a great place um, in a wonderful historic setting on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Um, let's see. Well, you know, we haven't done this in a while, and it's the final Friday of the month of August, year 2022. Uh, so um, let's take a look at um, what happened in history um, through Greenwich Before 2000. It's a book that was published as an updated, revised edition of another uh, Greenwich history book before and after 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Now, Greenwich Before 2000 goes through 1999. It was adopted as a project uh, years ago by the Greenwich Historical Society, uh, then made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr., um, who is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich and whose numerous charitable bequests have um, advanced the preservation of Greenwich's history for many years. Now, the book Greenwich Before 2000 is available at the Greenwich Library uh, system. Go to any of the branches or you can go online and check. Um, the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store probably has these or you can even find them uh, copies on your favorite online bookseller. 
Today, let's go back. Oh, so many years, so many decisions, what to do. All right, let's go back to year 1909. There's quite a bit that happened. So um, sit back, relax, and, um, and enjoy the journey. So here we go. Now, on January 23rd, the Committee of 28 reports that in uh, that it is in the unanimous opinion, quote, that town government by the Board of Selectmen is ineffective, expensive, unbusinesslike, and a damage to the property of this community, unquote. Now, remember, this is 1909, not 2022. All right. The committee is charged with bringing a plan for a new form of government to the next town meeting. Now, on the 30th of that month, the Stanford Advocate reports, quote, for years, the town of Greenwich has been governed by a clique of self-appointed bosses, unquote. Sound Beach, which would be modern-day old Greenwich, has a secession meeting and is hopeful of lessening extravagances of the town government by publicizing them. Hmm. In February 1909, Riverside and Sound Beach are dissatisfied with the lack of services provided by the town, for example, repair of roads and police protection. However, Riverside, with only 50 votes, as opposed to Sound Beach's 200, but paying taxes on real estate of $1,211,851, as compared to Sound Beach's $988,149 decides to remain a part of Greenwich. Sound Beach, again, that's modern-day old Greenwich, um, holds out longer and even considers joining Stamford. Obviously, that didn't happen. March 6, the town meeting votes on adoption of the report of the Committee of 28 concerning plans for a new government. 549 for, 1,112 against. There is agreement that a change is needed, but disapproval of the committee's secrecy and the extent of change proposed. On March 25th, at a special town meeting, it is decided to ask the General Assembly to approve the establishment of a Board of Estimate and Taxation. There is concern that the special town meeting was illegally called. But as many of you know, we do have a Board of Estimate and Taxation um, in today's government. All right. On April 17, Louisine... Havemeyer agrees to sell a triangular plot of land to the United States government for a post office for $20,000. That triangular piece of land, by the way, is just off of Greenwich Avenue where it meets um, Art Street. And, of course, the um, the old post office uh, that is there is now the uh, Restoration Hardware Building, as it is known um, uh, today. Um, on May 1st, the cornerstone of, a, of the new Christ Church, the fourth edifice, is laid in the rain. The architect is William F. Dominic. On July 8th of 1909, the General Assembly authorizes the town to conduct and maintain the Greenwich General Hospital, including a contagious ward to conform to the deed of gift of Robert M. Bruce in 1903. On July 15, the new state school laws provide that the towns shall control all their public schools. All school business uh, is to be transacted in town meeting. Voters shall elect school board visitors, quote-unquote. School boards shall hire teachers and control schools. The town clerk and treasurer shall assume similar duties for school districts. School property is to be vested in the towns. On July 20th, the General Assembly passes a bill establishing a Board of Estimate and Taxation and 
For, well, for Greenwich, furthermore, they decide that the fiscal year begins on the first Monday of September. The board is to consist of 12 members elected biennially from each section of town. Budgets from the various departments for the following year are to be furnished to the board in August. Expense accounts of the various departments are due to the board in September. The board is to submit an estimated budget to the annual town meeting in October. Any increases will require three-quarters of legal voters present. In March, the board will determine the final tax rate. The records of the board are to be open to the public. The board is to appoint and pay an auditor, and all town officers are to be bonded. In July of um, 1909, J. Kennedy Tom built quarters for the Agassiz Association and its president, Edward F. Bigelow, called, quote-unquote, Arcadia, and that's spelled A-R-C-A-D-I-A, quote-unquote, is to be located on the northwest corner of Sound Beach Avenue and West End Avenue. Two years later, Todd withdraws his support and Bigelow moves the buildings to Arcadia Road. On July 31st, the state is to macadamize the post road between Cuscob and Mianus. There are protests that it won't hold up with all the traffic and that brick is better. On August 9th, a women's suffrage club is formed in Greenwich called the Greenwich Equal Franchise League. Adelaide Hyde is elected president. On August 11th of 1909, a request is made by the Board of Trade for a plan for a public park system. On August 19, the General Assembly authorizes a change of name from Fairfield County Golf Club to Greenwich Country Club. And of course, we know of that place. It is located over on Dublin Road, over in the mid-country section of, um, of town. On September 17, the deed to the 100-acre Bruce Memorial Park and the Bruce residence is turned over to the town according to the wishes of Robert M. Bruce by his sister Sarah E. Bruce. On October 2nd of 1909, at a special town meeting, a social services agency is created, headed by a commissioner of charities. And on December 4th, a new telephone building of steel, brick, and cement is to replace the quarters at the top floor of the post office building. At present, there are 1,500 phones in Greenwich, and 8,000 calls are made daily. And then the final item, the first paid driver, Gus Charb, is appointed for the Volunteer Hose and Chemical Company. And it says here in parentheses, he uh, dies in the line of duty in 1924. So there you have it. That's what happened in Greenwich as covered in the book Greenwich Before 2000. Again, you can find that in the Greenwich Library System for borrowing purposes, or you can go to your favorite online bookstore or even the Greenwich Historical Society's museum shop and see if you can find a copy there. Ladies and gentlemen, and I, I, I think specifically I'd like to address this uh, to those of you who are landlords uh, or managers of uh, properties and rental properties in particular. Um, the question that I have for you is this. Do you ever have problems trying to eject a tenant who just simply doesn't want to go away? Probably the answer for many of you is yes. Well, you know, do you think this is anything new? No, it's not. <laughs> um, I want to take you back uh, to uh, the summer, specifically to the month of August 
1924. Um, this was a story that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic on the 1st of August of, um, of that year. And uh, it uh, pertains to a desire of um, an owner of, actually, it was one of the great estates, um, and that would be Semlo Farm, which is now the uh, Sandwich Club located off of uh, North Street. And uh, Mrs. Holmes uh, wanted to uh, eject a, um, a tenant who just didn't want to leave. So um, the story goes as follows. A jury trial was held in a civil action brought by Mrs. Marion F. Holmes, widow of E.T. Holmes, against Captain James F. White, her tenant in the borough court Wednesday morning. That would be the borough of Greenwich, um, of course. Um, before Justice of the Peace William P. Mulville, Attorney J. Albert Hughes, and Harry F. Behrens, and that's spelled B-E-H-R-E-N-S, a New York lawyer representing the plaintiff and Judge William L. Tierney uh, appeared for the defendant. Six Greenwich men served on the jury, and those names are Henry G. Drinkwater, Stephen W. Jessup, Benjamin Riley, Frank Newman, Charles Carvet, and Judge Benjamin J. Schollerman. Mrs. Holmes testified that on July 1st, 1921, a written lease was executed between herself and Captain White for a house on her estate at North Street, known as Semlo Farm. And by the way, as a reminder to all of you, that's spelled S-E-M-L-O-H, Semlo Farm, which happens to be the Holmes name spelled backwards, in case you uh, didn't know. All right. Captain White entered into possession of the premises and since that time has been occupying the place. The lease expired on July 15, 1924, and Mrs. Holmes claimed that Captain White refused to leave the premises. Hmm. Captain White, who is a manufacturer of dry batteries in Brooklyn, said it was agreed that the lease should be extended until August or, or July 15, 1925. A letter sent to Attorney Hughes asking Mrs. Holmes to make certain repairs on the premises, which the defendant claimed she had failed to do, was introduced as evidence. Captain White said that he had been paying $100 a month for the lease of the premises. Let me repeat that again. He was paying $100 a month for the lease of the premises. Think about uh, today's uh, early 21st century rental prices. All right, let's move on, shall we? At the opening of the case, Judge Tierney made a motion to dismiss, as there was no evidence of demand, but Judge Mulville denied the motion. It was brought out during the hearing that a summary process for the non-payment of rent had been brought before Justice of the Peace Albert S. Mead some time ago. Attorney General Charles A. Moore was Captain White's attorney at that time. The judge awarded judgment in favor of the defendant, permitting him to remain on the premises of Mrs. Holmes, that would be Simlo Farm, until July 15th, 1925. I'm sure you'll agree that music on the lawn on Thursdays at the Bush Holly House in Costco is a hit. 
presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge. Music on the Great Lawn has been entertaining audiences weekly in the heart of the Greenwich Historical Society's campus at 47 Strickland Road. Summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in Bush Holly's exquisite historic gardens. On Thursday, September 8th, get ready for the Demolition Brass Band. Space is limited. Advanced registration is strongly recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Why don't you consider becoming a Greenwich Historical Society member and receive special rates? Don't put it off any further. The Great Lawn at Bush Holly House opens 5.30 p.m. Concert starts at 6.30 p.m. and goes to 8 p.m. Parking, as always, is free. You can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. It's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets have been wowing shoppers this past summer. In a class by itself, the the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of nature and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavors of nutritiously prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. My friends, get out a piece of paper and mark these dates down. Mark your calendars for Wednesday, September 7th, and September 21st, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, here's a secret. Don't tell anyone I said this, but you know what? Early birds are welcomed at 9.30. Shh. All right. (laughs) Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and tavern gardens of the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House campus at 47 Strickland Road. Free parking. Did you hear that? Free parking. Can't beat that, now can you? Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yasmin Lloyds and Compass. Thank you. Greenwich, Connecticut has an assortment of wonderful small communities within its uh, boundaries. They include Coscob, Old Greenwich, Riverside, Byram, Pemberwick, Chickahominy, um, let's see, Banksville. Um, we can go on and on and on. But there is one, and this is a place where I grew up, and that was Round Hill in the heart of um, Greenwich's back country. Um, I, I actually feel a little bit privileged, not snobby, but rather privileged um, about the fact that I grew up um, in, uh, in Round Hill. Um, it was a wonderful place. And um, though I'm not living there now, I, um, I do uh, on occasion miss it uh, rather dearly. The article that I'm going to uh, talk to you about today or present to you is from September 5th, 1903. That was way before, way, way, way before my time. And the... <laughs> The the um, the uh, headline is Round Hill Fest Growing, Many Properties Changing Hands in This Portion of the Township. A charming rural country with ever-changing vistas, the highest land between New York City and New Haven within five miles of the Sound. For many of the handsome country places and comfortable farmhouses which abound in Greenwich Township, a treeless, grass-covered eminence may be seen. 
It has no steep sides, nor does it rise majestically in abrupt lines, but with gradual slope culminates in a smooth round summit from which there is an inspiring view of the rich agriculture community country which surrounds it. This is Round Hill, thus appropriately named, famous through the region as a landmark since colonial days, and said to be the highest point between New York and New Haven, within five miles of the Sound. This height, something over 500 feet, is not apparent nor realized until one stands on the daisy-covered top and looks about. The panorama which on clear days unfolds itself well rewards the gentle ascent. It is hard to believe that such a perspective be possible from it, but there to the south lies the broad and shimmering waters of the Sound, with sailing craft gliding to and fro and steamers belching forth ringlets of smoke. Beyond Long Island marks a narrow line which is lost to view both east and west. The most favorite section within reasonable distance of New York is a map like before us. Bellhaven, a region known throughout the continent for its aggregation of beautiful homes, lies snugly by the Field Point section. The classic lines of the Edgewood Inn stand silhouetted against the waters of the Sound. The steeple of the Congregational Church, a notable guide to sailors, and that would be the second Congregational Church, if if I may interject, seems a mere pinpoint, and at the Benedict Place, that would be Commodore Benedict's uh, place, uh, on um, on Greenwich Harbor, the Spanish Renaissance rail, uh, red tile roof give a dash of color, a chilly Colorado flavor to the scene of gastronomy. gastronomy. Surrounded by splendid trees and well-kept grounds, the summer homes of a number of millionaires dot the landscape. Northward, there is a rolling agricultural country, rising slowly in picturesque undulations, forming cool valleys and breeze-swept knolls. On clear days, the faint blue line of the Berkshire Hills may be seen. To the west, much of Westchester County is visible, and the Palisades are plainly outlined, as well as the Pocantico Hills beyond. The steeple and church at New Canaan, 18 miles away, rises clear and distinct Beyond it, there is still seen a shadowy line of mountains which dips into the water of the Sound, whose shoreline are to be seen for a long way on either side. The section of Greenwich Township about this spot is generically known as Round Hill. Of North Round Hill, the nearest settlement uh, of view is given elsewhere, showing the Methodist Church, the Moore House, the Schoolhouse, the farmhouse and building of the William Stewart Todd property, which, by the way, embraces also Round Hill proper. Exactly 500 feet above tidewater, this tiny settlement is considered perhaps the healthiest and certainly the most rural and quote-unquote real country place in the township. It is typical of the fine region around it and beyond it, which awaits only better transportation facilities of some kind to make it sought for as eagerly as desirable land near the shore has been developed and occupied. In fact, there are not wanting those who predict that Round Hill, by its attitude and by reason of its short mile, five miles to Greenwich, most of it over a fine stone road, is destined to become the home home as desirable a class 
as has peopled the Bellhaven, Rock Ridge, and Field Point sections. There are at present several handsome homes which have been improved by newcomers. The Solomon S. Mead property, for instance, is now owned by Dr. Hyde. And if I may interject here, that is the Mead Farmstead that is located at the uh, intersection of Riversham Road and Cliffdale Road. Um, and Dr. Hyde, by the way, was Solomon S. Mead's son-in-law. <laughs> Mr. Mead actually continued to, uh, to live on the premises, by the way. Benjamin F. Fairchild of Fairchild Brothers and Foster purchased an old colonial home with its 300 acres and has restored the building, preserved its quaint and characteristic style of architecture and colonial furnishings. Robert S. Chamberlain of New York now owns the estate formerly of Dr. Taylor, while Mr. Todd of J. Kennedy Todd and Company, New York, to whom reference has been made, is deeply interested in this particular section. It is reported that he intends to build a magnificent home on the very top of Round Hill. It is said further that Charles A. Moore, who owns the fine estate, a fine estate at Belhaven, has been won over by the fascinations of this region and intends to erect a fine residence on the location of his present home in North Round Hill, moving the latter building to a spot on the slope of the hill. These are but a few instances. There are su uh, sufficient to demonstrate that the region described as being settled advantageously to the interest of all concerned. During the last 10 days, transfers of six large estates have been recorded, transactions chiefly by wealthy New Yorkers. One of the charms of Round Hill is an attraction typical of the whole township and only emphasized here by reason of the greater attitude of is the possibility of splendid panoramic views from almost every spot. From the top of Round Hill, the impression is gained that everything below is as flat as a pancake, but winding down the road on the return journey, the writer was surprised to find ever-changing vistas present themselves at every turn. This applies particularly to the southward view with glimpses great and small of the glimmering and quiet waters of the sound. Half a mile below, directly in the path of the southern slope of Round Hill, is a small settlement consisting of a church, a schoolhouse, and a few homes, which has developed around the general store established by Nathaniel Knapp in 1812. A sturdy and shrewd New England trader who founded a business which has been worthily carried on by his son and grandson to the present day. And by the way, if I may again interject, that that general store still exists today, and that would be, of course, the Round Hill store, um, which is said to be uh, America's oldest continuously operating general store founded in, um, in uh, the early 19th century. Uh, you can go there and you can uh, find it um, at the intersection of Round Hill Road and Old Mill Road. It's a wonderful place and I have many fond memories of going there and I hope that, that you go there too and, and generate your own memories. I think you will. Back to the story. The original building was torn down. By the way, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, my my um, recollection, well, I wasn't there, obviously, but my recollection was that the building was actually moved from diagonally across the street uh, from its original location. And if I may continue with the story, and a new one erected 50 years ago by his son, O.C. Knapp, whose name still hangs over the front door. 
In those early days, Round Hill and Stanwich were the social and commercial centers of the township, being more conveniently located to the main artery of travel, the Old King's Highway, which came from New York State. Greenwich proper was but a grouping of farms with a small settlement at Horseneck. Present events would prophesy that the old soil trampled down by the heavy tread of the colonial plowmen will before long feel the art-inspired and lavish hand of the landscape gardener and the dilettante touch of the city agriculturalist. And again, my friends, that is a view of Round Hill, place where I was raised and still find uh, near and dear uh, memories uh, to um, keep me happy. <laughs> and this story was printed in the Greenwich uh, Graphic um, on Saturday, September 5th, 1903. Well, my friends, it's time for me to say so long for now. Thank you, as always. I'm very grateful for you tuning in to the 26th of August 2022 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. It's my pleasure to be your host. Um, I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of this wonderful town called Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are so glad to have you. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect and principal of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, a special project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Mr. Kevin J. M. J. O'Connor, a good friend of mine at Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, do you want to contact me? Well, you're welcome to do so by email at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show, and you can listen to past shows. There's no uh, pay firewall, by the way, by going to GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Uh, I post the uh, the show, by the way, on Facebook, and so um, you can go there and uh, find it. We have a, a special page for the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show, uh, and you can find it there. And speaking of Facebook... I encourage you to look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut groups. They include, you know, you're from Greenwich. If images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, Byram Neighborhood Board, the Friends of Byram Park, and, of course, our neighbors, the Portchester, New York Historical Archive, and there's more. Now, our next show is going to be, oh my goodness, it's going to be on Labor Day weekend. Um, that would be September 2nd uh, of uh, year 2022. By the way, Labor Day is September 5th um, of, um, of that month. It'll be a long holiday for, uh, for everybody. So please, by all means, go out and enjoy yourselves. I look forward to being back with you uh, next week on September 2nd uh, with more about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut. Thank you for listening, as always. Bye-bye now.